there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to E Pluribus Unum, a podcast focused on unity. Today is a Friday, so as always, we're going to focus on the weekly Parsha, or Torah portion. This week's Parsha is Vayikra. It is the first portion of the third book in the Torah, the third of the five books of Moses. In Latin, it's Leviticus which is a pretty cool name. But in Hebrew, it's Vayikra, which is the first word of the portion. That's often where the names come from for the names of the Parshas and also the names of the books themselves. It's the first word or within the first sentence. In this case, it's the first word, Vayikra, which means, and he called. The first line is, and he called to Moses, and the Lord spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. So God calls to Moses and tells him all about, well, let's summarize it. Briefly, and then we'll get into in depth with it a little bit more. Our summary, as always, comes from Chabad.org. God calls to Moses from the tent of meeting and communicates to him the laws of the Korbanot, the animal and meal offerings brought in the sanctuary. These include the ascending offering, or Ola, which is wholly raised to God by the fire atop the altar, five varieties of meal offering, Mincha, prepared with fine flour, olive oil, and frankincense, the peace offering, Shalamim, whose meat was eaten by the one bringing the offering after parts are burned on the altar and parts are given to the Kohanim, or the priests. The different types of sin offerings, Chatat, brought to atone for transgressions committed erroneously by the high priest, the entire community, the king, or the ordinary Jew. Finally, the guilt offering, Asham, brought by one who has misappropriated property of the sanctuary, who is in doubt as to whether he transgressed a divine prohibition or who has committed a betrayal against God by swearing falsely to defraud a fellow man. So it's all about sacrifices, which is interesting because if you had to think of your most stereotypical Jew, it's fine, it's in your head, you're probably thinking of some little nebbish guy who's an accountant, right? Glasses, kind of short, reedy. We don't generally think of Jews as macho. And yet, sacrifices, it's down and dirty and intense, and there's blood and fire and fat of the animals. In interesting contrast to how we think of Jews today, at least it is in my mind. We're so used to sacrifices, for those of us who are Jewish or Christian or maybe of other religions, we read about it, so we don't really think about it. The Jews used to offer sacrifices. Cool. But when you stop to think about what that meant, what that must have looked like and smelled like when you realize that there were special divots in the altars so that the blood could run down. This was a messy, dirty business. And these were the priests who were involved with it. They were the holiest people in the Israelite community. And they weren't sitting loftily on some thrones or only singing praises. They were butchering animals and burning them. It's interesting when you allow your mind to think about something just for a little bit. Again, when you're so used to something, you don't even give it second thought until someone points it out to you or you force yourself to think about it. We're so used to sacrifices being a part of religion that we probably don't really think about what it means. We offer sacrifices. 
Some people offered human sacrifices. A lot of people offered animal sacrifices or incense. It's just what we do. And when we're so used to doing something, it's really hard to take a step back and to think about it. But that's what I want to do today is to take a little bit of a step back and think about it. People do this a little bit with sacrifices because it's so weird to us. I imagine most of us aren't offering young he goats on altars in our backyard, but we still accept the fact that it used to be a thing, even though it's not a thing for us today. But I think it's important to question even why it was a thing back then. Why were the Jews offering sacrifices? And there are a lot of different ideas given by various sources. Some, some people say that, especially when it comes to guilt and sin offerings, that really we would be the ones taking the punishment for the bad thing, but we're offering up the animal in our stead. So the animal truly is sacrificing its life or we're sacrificing the animal's life for ourselves. That's one idea. The other idea is that sacrifice was very common in the ancient world, also in the not so ancient world, but definitely in the ancient world. And unfortunately, in a lot of societies, they had human sacrifice. So having animal sacrifice was God's way of saying to the Israelites, it's going to be hard for you to be living amongst nations who are involved in these activities that I don't want. So I'm not going to say no sacrificing at all. That's going to be too hard for you. But animal sacrificing, and I'm going to be very particular about when you can bring sacrifices and what they're for so that you're not overly bloodthirsty or doing it in ways that are unacceptable. Just bring animals, don't bring humans. That explanation also brings up the interesting question of, will we return to sacrifices when the Messiah comes? Or will we not? Because offering sacrifices is not so common anymore. So were the sacrifices in the Torah, in the laws, were those just for the Israelites then, who were surrounded by human sacrifice? And that was just what happened at that time? Or is it something for all time? That's an interesting question without an answer yet. Another idea is that we give sacrifices because God told us to. And when God tells us to do something, we do it, and we don't necessarily need a reason for it. One of the lines indicates that the offerings are a pleasing aroma to God. And Rashi says, what is this pleasing aroma? Burnt skin, burnt animal is not necessarily a pleasing aroma. So what is this thing that pleases God? It is us doing what he wants just because he's asked us to do it. There's no other reason. He wants us to do it. He wants our obedience. He wants our love. And we give it to him. An interesting analogy to this is a wife asks her husband for flowers for her birthday, or just in general, she enjoys getting flowers. And he says, the flowers are not so practical. They die. They're very expensive. I don't understand why you want them. I'm not going to get them for you. And the wife says, it doesn't matter if you understand. I like getting flowers. Get me flowers. So sacrifices are sort of the same thing. We don't understand them. It feels like a waste of resources. It takes up a lot of time. It's expensive but God wants it and we do it. Another opinion says that offering sacrifices is part of the Jewish mission to elevate the natural world. That's a big part of the Jewish mission is to 
make the natural world holy, to bring it to a level of godliness so that God can dwell here. So every blessing made on food, for example, elevates that piece of food from just an orange that grows on a tree to something used for holiness. A new suit that is worn to go to synagogue elevates that suit from mere clothing to something used for a holy purpose. So we try to elevate the natural world. We try to elevate the world in general. So these animals are being elevated and used for something holy. And the final idea, and this is the one that I am going to delve into a little bit more because it speaks to me a lot, is that sacrifices are meant to elevate ourselves. So it's interesting. In Hebrew, the word is karban, and the root for that is karev, which means bring close. We're so used to it as being a sacrifice, because that's the word in English, and that comes from Latin, and it's two parts. The first part is sacre, sacred, which means to make holy, and the second part of the word is facer, which means to make or do. So sacrifice in Latin is doing something holy, doing something priestly. But in Hebrew, it means to bring close. And who are we bringing close? Not the animal. We're bringing ourselves close through the animal. All humans are created in the image of God, every single one. But we are also animals. We have to eat and sleep, other necessary bodily functions. We procreate. Man, and by man, I of course mean humankind, is this very interesting duality of beast and also the divine, something higher than every other animal. So when we bring an animal sacrifice, we are bringing close our holy and godly selves to God, and we are subduing our animal selves. We are both literally subduing it because we are doing an act of service to God, which is holy, and also metaphorically subduing our animal selves by by burning the animal. We are saying this animal part of ourself is being, we're getting rid of it, or we are containing it and controlling it. Because we are both, and God made us that way on purpose, because, because otherwise he could have populated the world with angels, but he didn't want to populate the world with angels. He wanted to populate with people who could actively make the choice to do good who could procreate, who could plant seeds to make trees grow, who could build buildings and create art. God made the world for us to live in as physical beings. So we don't need to totally tamp down on our animal instincts. In fact, there's a Jewish idea that we are not supposed to close ourselves off from the pleasures of the world that are acceptable for us. There are some that are not acceptable and those we are, but the things that are acceptable, we shouldn't say that we're never eating chocolate again because it makes us happy and to be holy is to be more ascetic. That's not what Judaism teaches. If you don't eat chocolate because every time you eat it, it makes you sick, that's different. But if it's something that's permissible to us and we swear it off, in an attempt to be more holy, we're actually doing the opposite because God wants us to live in this world. And when we die, the saying goes, we'll have to answer for all the pleasures that we denied ourselves, all the permissible pleasures that we denied ourselves on earth. So God made us physical beings, but we also all have a soul. And though we are very like animals in many ways, we are also different. It is the difference that matters. 
it's always interesting to me when people say that humans and monkeys are genetically 99% the same. Okay, we're 99% the same. That's great. But clearly that 1% is making a big difference because look where we are and look where they are. Numerically, it might be a small difference, but in terms of what it means for how we interact in the world, it's a huge difference. And I don't know exactly what people mean when they bring up, and I don't know if it's 99%, but it's a pretty high percentage. And same with rats. We're supposed to also be very genetically close. Maybe it's to a lot of animals. We're very genetically close. That's great. But in this case, it's the difference, that 1%, that is much more meaningful than the 99% where we're the same. Yes, we might be very similar to animals, but we have the ability to rise above our natural instincts. And because we have the ability, we also have the obligation to rise above those natural instincts. If a little kid is throwing a temper tantrum, we teach them to stop, but we don't get too angry at them because they don't yet have the capability of rising above that. If a 35-year-old throws a temper tantrum, then we're a little bit more upset because a 35-year-old should know to rise above a temper tantrum. If animals have sex with their siblings, which does happen, they're not doing something inappropriate because they don't know how to rise above that. But if humans do it, then we have something to say on the subject. We have the ability to rise above our natures, which is not to say that our animal instincts, that our animal side is bad. Our animal side is neither bad nor good. Nature is not bad or good. Nature is neutral. A cat that eats a bird is not bad. The cat is not a murderer. That's what cats do. They eat birds to survive. A bird that eats a worm. The bird is not bad. The bird is eating the worm to survive. That's how the bird was made. That's how the cat was made. That's what the worm was made for. They all work together. They're all supposed to work together. That's how it was made. Nature is neutral. What's interesting to me is that we have this tendency to think that if something is natural, it's good. And if something is unnatural, it's bad. For instance, organic, whole grain, farm-to-table food is good. GMOs are bad. Why? Because the first are natural and the second are unnatural. Just being open about sex generally is supposed to be good because sex is a natural thing. Everyone does it. And being closed off and private about sex is bad because sex is natural. You don't need to be closed off about it. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's good. And just because something is unnatural doesn't mean it's bad. Cancer treatments are not necessarily natural, but they're good because they help people. Wearing glasses is not natural, but it's good because it helps people. Having hospitals at all and caring for the sick and weak is not natural, but it is good. So nature doesn't equal good and nature doesn't equal bad. Nature equals nature. It just happens. And there are things in nature that are bad, and we know this if we stop to think about it. Blizzards, hurricanes, tornadoes, famine, floods, locust, hail, <laughs> snake bites, strokes, heart attacks. These are all things in nature, and from a human perspective, these are all bad things. But that's just it, really, is that it's from a human perspective, how we look at things. Those things to us are bad, because they harm people, and we don't like things that harm people. And things in nature that help people are good because we like when good things happen to people. But they're really not bad or good. Bad and good implies conscious thought, conscious, deliberate 
action, knowing that what you do is bad or good. A two-year-old that takes a Twix from the checkout stand at Ralph's doesn't know he's being bad. He's just taking something. A 22-year-old that takes a Twix from the checkout stand without paying is bad. There has to be deliberate, conscious awareness of actions before you can say good or bad. And nature doesn't have that. Nature exists. God created nature to act a certain way, and it acts that way. You plant a seed, it grows into a tree, which is fascinating, by the way. Isn't it interesting how things can grow? That little tiny seed can become a tree. Where did the tree come from? Does that only amaze me? I really find that even humans, we start out small and then somehow we grow. Like, where does growth come from? I find that very fascinating. But nature works in a certain way. And then it just goes and it's not good and it's not bad. We can do things to harness nature. There are things in nature that are helpful to us. There are things in nature that are harmful to us. But we shouldn't get caught up in this idea that nature is inherently good. There's this song, I think it's from the 90s or 2000s, and it's used to be really popular. It was by the Bloodhound Gang. The song was The Bad Touch, and the lyrics or the refrain is, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. It's so gross and so base. Hey, we're animals, let's have sex. Yes, we are animals. Yes, we need to have sex to procreate. Sometimes even sex for other reasons. But we are more than our animal instincts. We can rise above them. We can come closer to God. And in the days in the desert, that was through sacrifice. Bringing an animal to the tabernacle or to the temple, burning it, and literally and metaphorically showing God that we were coming close, that we were subjugating our animal instincts and rising above them. Today, we don't offer sacrifices, but there are still ways, myriad ways, that we can control our animal impulses and act above that. We cannot sleep around, just have sex within marriage. So we are engaging in a physical act, but we are doing it for a holy purpose. We can have good table manners and thank God before we eat and thank God after we eat because we still have to eat, but we don't have to eat like animals and we should be grateful for the food that we have that elevates an animal act to something holy. There's a prayer that's commonly said after a Jew uses the bathroom, thanking God that our body works as it's meant to work. That's a way of elevating the grossest, in my opinion, and most animal act to something holy. And even if one is not Jewish, it's not like only Jews can do these things. These are just specific examples from Judaism. But anything that we do, if we thank God beforehand, or if we do it deliberately and consciously, and not just because it feels good, but because it has meaning and purpose and helps others and elevates our soul and is different than the way animals do it, then we are rising above our animal selves and being what we can truly be as humans. I don't understand why we would want to be what animals are. Cows are wonderful, but a cow is a cow and a human is a human. And if you were born as a human, God intended you to be a human and you have so much that you can offer to the world exactly the way that you are made, exactly the way that you are born. There's no need to regress to some more natural state because that's not why God put you here. He put you here as you are. And how can you, as you are, make this world a better place? That's 
the constant question, the endless refrain that every day we should be asking ourselves when it comes to any topic, remembering that we are here as we are with our talents and our challenges. And the question is figuring out what the purpose of them is. One final thought. There are 613 commandments and there is a cycle of them, just like there's a cycle that once a year we read through all of the portions in the Torah. People also study a certain number of mitzvahs or commandments each day so that in the cycle of a year, you've studied all 613. And a lot of the mitzvahs are about sacrifices or are more ritualistic. But the one for today is actually a negative commandment. And it is negative commandment number 266 from Deuteronomy 518. It is, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. It is forbidden to entertain thoughts of jealousy regarding a coveted item that belongs to a fellow. We've talked about jealousy before and how negative it is within our own souls and our own hearts and how being jealous makes it much harder to appreciate what we have and be happy and turns us into angry, upset people. And we don't want to be angry, upset people. We want to be happy, purposeful, grateful people. And it's also a good reminder that people might have more or have something different than we have, but they might also be lacking in something else. They might have a cool sports car, but a terrible relationship with their wife. They might have a great job, but never see their kids. They might have a huge home, but be terribly in debt. We don't know what other people have. So coveting what other people have doesn't hurt them. It only hurts you. So don't hurt yourself. Stop coveting. And try helping yourself by always being a little bit kinder than necessary. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at E Pluribus Unum Podcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 1 in C Major, known as the Waterfall Etude. <laughs>